Welcome to the Drinks Chat Podcast. I'm Adam King. I'm Emma Lunt, a podcast where we dive into the world of beverages, explore exciting venues, and chat with the fascinating people that make the industry buzz. Okay, welcome again to Drinks Chat. Emma, we've got another amazing episode today. We do. We are talking everything wastage today. Um, it's a huge challenge in the hospitality industry, affecting both your profitability, sustainability, and it's really cool to see some small companies um, playing their role in reducing waste and the big guys. Uh, they're doing this by recycling programs, food donations, lighter glass and packaging. I mean, the list goes on. However, there's one company we feel is really leading the change um, and the charge in this space in the drinks industry here in Perth, and that is Damage Good Distilling. And we're lucky enough to have Tim LaFerla, the owner, co-creator of Damage Good Distilling for this chat today. So let's get into it. Okay, so we've got um, Tim LaFerla here with us today. Tim's a really smart guy. I I first met Tim many moons ago um, when he was making drinks at Mechanics uh, in Northridge. Um, Since then, he's travelled the world, um, now back in Perth with a new direction of his career, um, and he's the main man behind Damage Goods Distilling. Welcome to the Drinks Chat Podcast, I should say. Tim, how you going? (laughs) Thanks, Adam. Good to to be here. So, Tim, tell us a little bit about Damage Goods Distilling, please. Yep, so, I mean, the the philosophy of damaged goods is pretty simple, right? So, we just make high-quality spirits from food waste. So, the idea is to show people that it doesn't really matter what things look like as long as they taste good. That's the, that's the whole premise. And we're not kind of trying to reinvent the wheel and create, like, brand-new esoteric flavours that no one's ever heard of before. We're taking things that are familiar and putting our own spin on them. And where are you getting the produce, et cetera, all from? Where's that come? Yeah, so it comes from two, I guess, two main sources. One is working directly with farmers, um, growers, producers, however they wish to be called, um, and taking essentially the worst, in inverted commas, um, worst produce that they have, which sometimes is actually pretty damn good. <laughs> um, and the other one is working with other food businesses. So mainly with like juicing companies, other alcohol manufacturers, producers, um, taking pulps, peels, spent grains, you name it, anything that I think can be a source of flavour, um, we'll take it. Cool. And Tim, like, I guess, uh, tell us where and I guess when did you start in hospitality and your journey so far? Yeah, I mean... I, I've kind of come full circle now, so I started here in Perth. Um, oh, I mean, the day I turned 18, I started working in bars. And it originally was because I was a very shy, geeky kid growing up, and I wanted to push myself out of my comfort zone. So I just started, I was like, okay, I'm going to do it, and then I'm not going to be that anymore. <laughs> so I, uh, I started working in pubs um, when I was 18, went through some nightclubs, um, and then at the time... Um, I was studying at uni and did a whole bunch of different things that I finished or didn't finish. And, <laughs> but hospitality was kind of the one constant throughout it all. Um, and then I just got to a point where this is actually what I want to do, um, even though I tried out a whole bunch of other different things. And, um, and yeah, I had the opportunity to start um, going into cocktail bars because the nightclub owner um, at the time was opening a cocktail bar. Um, and then I met a whole bunch of really good guys and... Uh, 
became friends with them and that led to getting gig at Mechanics Institute on the opening team, which we had, yeah, pretty awesome team who pretty much everyone on that crew now owns their own business. So <laughs> here cool. in Perth, um, pretty pretty much everyone. So um, so yeah, it was a bit of an, a little bit of an all-star team there. <laughs> and this whole sustainability way of thinking, no wastage, all of yep. that, where did that stem from? Yeah, there's kind of two parts to it really. Um, one is growing, growing up here in Perth, I grew up in the hills, like um, in Carmel, Bickley Valley, and there's orchardists everywhere out there. And I lived on a 22 acre property that my stepdad owns, and he still lives on the property now. Um, and he had a massive orchard of oranges, but they were, Val- they were Valencia oranges. <laughs> Love this. So busy. <laughs> You can take that if you want that. Business <laughs> <laughs> owner <laughs> problems, this is it. Should we start that again or should no. we? keep going. No. Um, yeah, so I grew up in the hills in, uh, in Les Murdy and Sorry, at the back of Les Murdy, Carmel, Bickley. Um, and then uh, he had this mas- massive orchard of oranges, but they were Valencia oranges, um, which are an amazing orange in the summer. But they're a little bit smaller and have seeds compared to navel oranges, which is the one you'll find in the supermarket. So when they're at their peak in summer, and navels are nowhere to be found in Australia, um, the supermarkets will import navels from America rather than getting Valencias that are grown right here in Australia that are in season, really good quality, taste amazing, just because of that, slightly smaller and have seeds. So it kind of got to a point where for him, um, and back then cold-pressed juicing, this was like 10, 15 years ago, maybe more, cold-pressed juicing wasn't really too much of a trend, too much of a thing. It was just your standard orange juice cartons in the supermarket, that kind of stuff. So he was getting, yeah, cents on the dollar for those oranges. So at some point it just became like so time and expensive um, to upkeep the orchard. He just bulldozed the lot. Oh, wow. Um, and then on top of that, you know, he, obviously everyone up there knows everyone. So he always used to tell all these kinds of stories of other kind of farmers, producers. And uh, there's one that he always tells me, which is basically um, a friend of his grew a ton of turnips, took them to the market. They were supposed to be bought by uh, one of the major supermarkets. And yeah, they ended up rejecting them because when he harvested them, apparently he cut the stems five millimetres too short, so they weren't to spec as such, um, oh. which is pretty insane because, you know, when you think about it, you go to a supermarket, you pick up a turnip, you don't look at it and go, oh, that stem's looking a little short. I'll put that one back. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. Um, and then the other part of it, um, of how I got to this point, was... Working with, um, you know, in London, I worked with a chef called Adam Handling. In Sydney, I worked with Matt Wiley, who now owns Re, which does a very similar thing in the cocktail world. And, um, and yeah, just working with them and seeing what they were doing um, and even working at Charlie Parker's in Sydney as well, um, seeing a lot of what people were doing was fermentation and distillation to kind of use up all these odds and ends or create flavour where there wasn't as much or, yeah, and kind of... I just put the two and two together and go, fermentation, distillation, that's spirits. Um, And then, yeah, here I am. (laughs) Well, that whole um, millimetre of the turnips, that's a whole podcast in itself, isn't (laughs) that where that comes from? That's nuts. Yeah, I mean, at that point as well, it's part of it is obviously the wastage, but then you know what happens is the next week they come back, oh, no one's bought your turnips, so we're going to give you cents on the dollar. So it's about squeezing. And that's happening across the board in all industries now. It's not, it's quite scary 
I mean, that's why Spudshed exists, because they take all the stuff that's, you know, the other supermarkets don't want that's perfectly good. The less so, pretty yeah. stuff. <laughs> so when you did your <coughs> tour of duty to London, you came back to Australia and you're working in a few bars. Um, yep. you, you're working in Sydney and you're working in Adelaide as well? You spent some time in Adelaide? No, oh, just Sydney. Sydney. Sydney and then, yeah, nearly five years in Sydney all up. So the, um, what was the decision to come back to Perth to, to I guess, start this journey? Yeah. How did that all come about? Um, I mean, the the decision to come back to Perth from Sydney was pretty easy. Sydney's really expensive <laughs> and I didn't think that anyone was crazy enough to invest in this kind of an idea. And it was kind of one that where if you do have an investor, it needs to be the right one for the right reasons. Otherwise, I would get forced into making decisions for the wrong reasons. Um, so I've done this all self-funded, just myself and my partner, Pia. Um, it's just us. Um, we basically had the decision to either buy a house and put down a house deposit or start a distillery. So we did the distillery. <laughs> um, and yeah, I've got the support of my family here. Um, plus, obviously, yeah, everything is a little bit cheaper, property, etc. So, I mean, yeah, it was the perfect starting point. And plus, you know, having yeah that support of family was kind of been critical. This whole VN seems to be in you from dead art really it's <laughs> family and then the hospitality scene just all coming together um did you always think one day you'd want to run your own company have your own brand or like or is that just something that naturally evolved yeah I've always been a very ambitious person and I've always wanted to do something of my own for sure um did I ever think it would be a distillery no <laughs> I mean that kind of came yeah much later down the track. I, I guess that probably came for a couple of reasons. When I, during COVID, I was still living in Sydney and um, and I started doing, and obviously over there, the lockdowns were much, much worse than here in Perth. So no one was really working in hospitality at the time. So I started doing spirits buying for an online retailer. And I did that for like a year and a half, nearly in the end, two, nearly two years. And throughout that time, I got to try so many different kinds of spirits, obviously. Um, yeah, literally hundreds, if not thousands of different spirits m that are made here in Australia. Um, and yeah, I just thought, well, no one's doing it. So, or, and I saw a lot of distilleries kind of doing dribs and drabs of it, or it was like just like a limited edition kind of thing, or a lot of distilleries that were either doing it and not talking about it, or probably even worse, doing it and trying to dress it up as something else. Um, and then that combined with you know, the big brands and then them coming to bartenders and being like, I want you to make something with food rice. I'm like, well, why the hell are you not doing it then? Why don't they do it? Why, why, why weren't there's, they doing it? There's one big brand uh, in the UK, one of the very major ones that has a brand that they've started that's trying to do it. But yeah, I don't find it very genuine as such, but Marketing that's a, more? That's a whole nother, yeah. They're, they're trying to, they're doing it not because they want to do it. They're doing it to capitalise on the trend. Yeah rather um and yeah i mean i don't want to ruffle too many feathers here but um but yeah it's I, I don't find it like if you're if you're making a spirit with waste that comes from south um america with um i don't know rum that comes from the caribbean and you're distilling it in scotland like what what's the point yeah. do you know what i mean it's like yeah, by, by the time you add in all that carbon footprint, you've literally just 
negated all the benefit to everything you've just done. It just becomes a story at that point and doesn't become impactful. Um, I want to do something that's impactful. Like if I had my way and I could, you know, live out my big, hairy, audacious goals, it would be like I would have like a network of distilleries across the world that has like a core range of products that um, take food waste and then have a more regional-based core range as well. Um, because, yeah, I mean, at the moment, the, the shipping and stuff like that, that's a big challenge as well. Like the... I think I said to you earlier just before we jumped on, but the the actual food waste itself is fairly easy. It's fairly straightforward. It just requires a little bit of creativity and a little science. Um, packaging, logistics, transport, that is the challenge. That's the challenge. And that's probably more wasteful in general, isn't it? That's probably For the sure. hardest. I yeah. mean, carbon emissions, um, you know, if, if little old me trying to tell a, I don't know, a glass bottle manufacturer that services thousands tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of businesses across the world, please don't wrap a shrink, pa- shrink wrap the pallets. Find another way. Yeah. Like, it's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but if no one ever starts, then nothing will ever change. I do see a little bit of it in the wine industry where a lot of the bigger guys are having to lead by example and they are using lighter glass to be able to send it across, just in Australia on yeah. its own, but that's it's going outside of Australia too. And I think there is an authenticity element that I think you're alluding to that is not always... maybe there which I think you have in spades but I think if the bigger guys don't do some of this it's never gonna of course never gonna happen and I'm all for them doing stuff um because anything that makes a difference is worthwhile even if it's only a little bit because that's the thing we'll as a society will there'll always be some element of waste or emissions Mm -hmm. it's just getting it to a level where it's Sustainable. That's what sustainability is about. It's not necessarily eliminating it completely. It's about making sure that the planet can naturally deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm all for them doing it. But, yeah, don't... And, but if you're going to try and... It's like, it's like it just becomes blatant greenwashing at a point. If, if you're going to do it, it needs to have that tangible impact. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just a story. And I guess if they... If they the, some of the bigger guys that I've seen do it... If they are starting to ask for lighter glass or different packaging, then more of it will be created rather than little of you in Perth. (laughs) So hopefully that even will start making the production stuff a bit more prevalent. Oh, of course. I mean, it's all about scale of economy, right? Exactly right. um, Like things, for example, at the distillery, like like I said, we try and do the same ethos in everything we do, from cocktails to what materials that our bar counters made out of everything like my bar counters made out of shampoo bottles at the distillery um but even that the the sheeting which is made in sydney from they take all sorts of post-consumer plastics they make some coasters for me as well um defy the design they're great look them up (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah it's just like them even them it's like four guys in a workshop just creating this plastic sheeting out of recycle out of post-consumer plastics it's um it's still very expensive and for for these things to happen it needs to become normalized and yeah just more people need to do it because then scale of economy it'll become more affordable um yeah we need to make these things trendy (laughs) so tim basically you're you're a relatively new player in the uh i guess distilling game um so basically if someone wanted to want to become a distiller or start their own distillery um what are some of the key tips that you can give them unless if they want to jump on board and be a create the next um gin brand or Booze yep. brand. I mean, if you want to 
do what I did, have lots of money. Absolutely. <laughs> 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 we definitely came to the point where we basically nearly ran out. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's not a cheap endeavour to get in. And I think the times of people starting up on, you know, less than 50K is done and dusted. Like, it's very hard now. Um, like, I mean, even, you know, you buy a pallet of glass bottles, you're already looking at, like, four or five grand. Like, it, it all adds up extremely quickly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you need to have your finances in order and you need to have that, like, your business plan and pricing and everything, like know the business yep. as well just as much as like it's all fun and games to be able to you know make some cool stuff that tastes good but yeah it still needs to be a business otherwise you'll you won't survive your first year i mean well, we're, we're still in the first three months so we'll yeah. see if i'm still here <laughs> in another nine months time yeah, how um, was the uh the licensing situation in regards to that because that, that's always been a hurdle in wa yeah i mean ours was short by those standards um we we took a slightly more risk averse course, which cost us a little bit more time. Um, so we did planning because you won't find a, a space pretty much that's approved for distilling already because anyone that's got it kind of stays there because it takes so much time and money. Um, so very rarely ones will come up for sale these days. Um, so yeah, planning approval to get a change of use. We didn't do any significant building, so we didn't even need building approvals or anything like that. It was a simple change of use. Um, that alone took five months. Then liquor license took another five months, and we did them um, back to back rather than parallel because again, it's a risk. Like you can spend thousands and thousands of dollars on consultants and stuff for your planning approval, and then if you don't get it, then the thousands and thousands of dollars you're going to spend on your liquor license are gone too. So. So, yeah, we kind of did them one after the other, which just ends up costing time rather than money. So, yeah, it's it depends on which risk you're more comfortable with, I guess. Um, but only yourself, I guess, can answer that. Um, I guess the thing was we had the time um, and we had a very flexible landlord in that regards. Um, so, yeah, I mean, start to finish. And like I said, ours was very small, low-key. I didn't have loads of contractors. We built everything ourselves where we could. Um plumbers and sparkies in to do the the necessary bits um but yeah start to finish we looked at the site in august last year and we didn't release our first product till um september this year so yeah just over a year wow well if someone wanted to try these products can you tell us what you've got what they're called what's in them yeah, so right at the very this very time of recording, I've just got the two products. Mm-hmm. So um, the first one is the Final Squeeze Citrus Gin. Um, so that one I work with two different juicing companies, um, Citrus WA, which if you have lots of industry viewers, they probably use them for lemon and lime juice. I take their lemon and lime husks. And then I also work with Pressed Earth, which also supply hospitality, but they have a more of a consumer presence as well. Um, and from them I take um, oranges, grapefruits, um, yeah, so lemon, lime, orange, grapefruit basically goes into the gin. And kind of the idea was to make it still very citrus forward, but very much still tastes like gin. <laughs> Didn't want to go too far with that one. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 90% of the recipe is that classic gin based juniper, coriander seed and citrus husks. But citrus husks a lot by gin standards. Yeah. Um, and even it's funny, like, like I said, it's a little bit of science and a little bit of creativity because like... The amount of distillers I spoke to, like, oh, you can't do that. You can't use the husks because you get the bitterness from the pith. But you can because 
distilling in itself is a process of fractionation. So you're separating the different flavors. The, the bitterness comes out in the tail, so you're getting rid of that anyway. Um, so yeah, it's been interesting that like distilling as well is one of those industries that can get very much wrapped up in tradition. Um, it's got a very, very long heritage and sometimes things are done that way for a reason and sometimes they're done just because that's the just way they're because. always done. Um, so yeah, I'm just got that kind of personality where I love to just question everything and make the mistakes for myself and find out. <laughs> um, and then the other product I have is the smashed apple aperitivo, which is just going crazy at the moment. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just wanted to do something that was fun for spritzes and stuff like that. And Fug Cider were just down the road from us in the valley. Um, so I went over and had a chat with them and they've got, yeah, every time they do a run, they've got a couple of tons of apple pops. So, and, and that's the thing. I've ch purposely chosen waste streams that are plentiful. Like even if I run out of Funk, um, Pressed Earth, Citrus WA, there's more juicing companies. And at the moment, they all have more waste than I can dream of using, wow. um, let alone more companies, more places. So, yeah, I'm trying to purposefully choose plentiful waste streams because then as I scale up, it can become more impactful. Um, and stuff that's still very local to the area, so reducing miles. Um, so, yeah, that one, fun, fruity, apple-based aperitivo for spritzes. Um, yeah. And then I have the third product, which maybe by the time this is out, it'll be ready. Um, that one, that one's probably... It's vodka, and I never thought in my life I'd get most excited about vodka, but I think it's the one that I'm most excited about. Why is um, that? It's the hardest one to make. Okay. Because that one, I'm basically, I'm making a classic style vodka. I'm just using fermentable sugars from bananas. And bananas is not something that's obviously traditionally used for that kind of thing. And bananas is one of the most wasted fruits by far. Um, I mean, they get all the usual things, like shapes, sizes, blemishes, that. But what people don't usually realise is that, first off, is that um, there's not as many secondary uses for lower-grade bananas. So, like... Apples, citrus, massive juicing industry to support it. Um, and with the bananas, we're working directly with growers in Carnarvon, so taking them from the farm. Um, and then, so yeah, they don't have as many secondary uses. Basically, from speaking with these growers, the only people they're selling the, the lower grade fruit to at the moment is banana bread makers and ice cream makers. That's about it. Um, they're trying to work on some added value products of their own, like frozen bananas to put in supermarkets and things like that. But yeah, there's, there's a lot less of those secondary uses for bananas. Then the other thing that people don't realize is so immediately, as soon as they come off the bunch, they're second grade, no matter what they look like, no matter what shape, no matter what size. Um, so we got close to half a ton of bananas for our first batch and every single one of them was loose. If you see loose ones in the shop, they broke off in the shop. They don't make it to the shop if they're loose. Wow. Um, oh, wow. So immediately second grade. Um, and then it was funny. I, I, I actually, I asked, um, so they've got like, it's a cooperative of 18 family growers and they've got one kind of central sales and marketing person that basically handles everything from them. And I told her like, send me the worst ones you have. And then I got this text message like, no one has ever asked me that before. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, it's, it's, the thing is, I'm asking for the worst, but how do you define the worst? It's like, I, I, we're purely talking about as long as, for me, as long as the skin hasn't split so that the integrity of the fruit is still there um, because wild yeasts and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah, as long as the integrity of the fruit's there, it really doesn't matter. As long as it tastes good, it doesn't matter. Um, and above, and that's the thing, like we're creating things for taste, for nutrition, but then we're judging it more on appearance. It just doesn't really make sense. Um, I mean, it's something primitive in our brains, I guess, that once upon a time served a purpose when we were foraging for food, but now it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I can tell you that my 16-month-old son goes through a ton of bananas, yeah. and he is not looking at the outer package. <laughs> <laughs> He's eating what's inside. <laughs> so I guess you had a few bananas during the, uh, the process of making the vodka? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I'm, sure I'm not sick of them, fun. though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that, one, that product I'm really excited about because it's the most interesting one because, yeah, essentially, yeah, fermenting essentially using a process to juice the banana first um, than they're currently fermenting at the moment. Um, yeah, it's a it's very labour-intensive as well, just me and P- myself and Pia peeling close to half a tonne of bananas. Do you actually ever have any waste from what you do? So, yeah, that's a good question, actually. So, um, obviously, once we're done with it, and because of the way I distill things, there tends to be nothing left to give in terms of flavour in them once once I'm done with them. Because, like, you see a few other distilleries, they'll make, I don't know, marmalades or salts or something like that, try to use some of their spent botanicals and such. Um, but, yeah, that wasn't really an option for me purely because I extract every single ounce that I can. Um, so we actually send, and a lot of people don't know this, I mean, you can set it up for your own venue too. Um, there's a few kind of middlemen who would do it for you, but we have enough that we send it directly to Rich Grow in Jandicott. Massive gardening supply company. You'll find a wall of their products in Bunnings. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have these massive um, anaerobic digestion tanks, which are... From what the guy there tells me, the uh, like microbiology in them is modelled on a cow's stomach. And so effectively we send them both our liquid and solid waste and they put them in these digestion tanks. And it's actually the same process pretty much that also happens in a landfill. The difference is they collect the methane rather than letting it expel into the atmosphere. And methane is like 14 times or something like that more damaging than carbon dioxide. Um, so it's pretty much the worst thing. That's why I avoid landfill at all costs. Like even composting at home, much better. Produces CO2 rather than methane. Um, so, so they basically capture the methane and use it as biogas. So they put it into a generator, which generates, I think he said something like 900 kilowatts. Uh, and they only need 300 kilowatts to power their plant. So then the rest of it goes into the grid. So That's the lights awesome. sound here maybe has a little bit of that. <laughs> I feel Powered like you by. should be going to those bigger venues and having these conversations with the big groups, the big... and It's such an education piece. Yeah. I mean, um, I haven't really done much of that yet. Uh, a bit busy maybe, right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, at the moment, it's just, yeah, it's, it, it's just myself. Pia's still working. I mean, we're very early days. Pia's still working a few days a week in another job. So it's kind of like make it, sell it, rinse, repeat. On, on to the next. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, but no, even then, even after that, so once the um, stuff is done with the digestion, it basically gets mixed with green waste then as well and goes, um, so like garden clippings and stuff, mm-hmm. um, and then it goes into all their compost. So yeah, Fantastic. go pick up a bag of Rich Grow products at Bunnings too. <laughs> um, so how has your, um, your R&D been going for some of your, I guess, newer products that you've been working with, well, I guess other fruit yeah. that you've been working with. Um, is it a, obviously a lengthy trial and error process? Um, 
Sometimes yes, sometimes no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It depends. Sometimes you never know. Sometimes you get lucky and it just works. Sometimes it's like, nope, back to the drawing board. Sometimes it's like you need to tweak it. Um, I'd say the biggest challenge is, and th- I mean, I'm not doing anything that's like, com- like the, the techniques I'm using are just adaptations of stuff that already exists. Yeah. Like some of the listeners, if they're working in bars, fancy cocktail bars, they might be familiar with some of the techniques I use. The challenge is doing them at scale. Yeah. So it's all well and good to do a litre or two at a time for a syrup or a liqueur or something that you make in the bar and then using cocktails. But then, yeah, trying to do, yeah. even at my scale, is pretty small. I'm doing, yeah, maybe between, I mean, the first few times I was doing like 100 litres. Now I'm doing probably 200 or 300. But, yeah, even that, it's like you can't do things manually anymore than you used to. Or you can, yeah. but it just takes you like weeks to do things which is not feasible ongoing so it's kind of like at the moment the biggest challenge is finding equipment to do the jobs because i'm doing things that are not typical of things at that scale um it's more stuff that i've seen done in kitchens or bars and then trying to scale those up so it's a lot of stuff that i kind of i tested a very small scale like bar kind of scale then the next step is cobble together equipment at low cost from like um, brewing and winemaking equipment, almost like homebrew kind mm. of size. Okay, it works at a more commercial level. Do it at that kind of scale for a little bit, to see if I can work out all the kinks. And then after that, I can invest in bigger equipment, whether it either be custom made or bigger brewing winemaking equipment. Which, um, so yeah, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> Um, and yeah, definitely. I mean, I've definitely already made mistakes and bought equipment that I now have no use for. Um, so yeah, it's, it's not, not the easiest thing to be doing. (laughs) I guess a lot of the equipment that you would need, some of the sizes probably don't even, you're probably just in between, right? Yeah, that, that, that's definitely true. And then you need to have the money to get it as well. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and if anybody wanted, um, to try your products, where would they buy them at the minute? Yep, um, you can contact me directly. If you're working in hospitality, I'm more than happy to come to your venue and give you a taste. Yeah. Um, there's, I, I mean, on our website we have, there's 20, 25 bottle shops, I think, in Perth at the moment stock us, about 15, 16 venues mm-hmm. as well. Um, plus we have, the, the at the distillery, we have a tasting room, so we're open Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, hopefully. Probably Sunday is probably the best day if you work in hospitality or you can come early on a Friday or something. Um, but, yeah, otherwise, contact me directly. If you work in hospitality locally in Perth, I can come to you. And then, yeah, we do various events every now and then too. So, yeah. Cool. Cool. And the um, the, the smashed apple, what's your signature serve? Yeah, that one, um, we do just a little kind of twist on a spritz. So, um I mean, it works great in the classic spritz, like exactly the same recipe as you do with like an Aperol spritz or something, just use our product instead. Um, but as a little kind of twist to bring things full circle at the distillery um, in the tasting experience, we do um, a spritz, but with Funk's apple cider instead of sparkling wine. Yeah. Um, their Perth cider, which is the same one that I take the apple pulp from. Um, and that uh, that's it's like, it's not a too sweet a cider. So it's got that kind of dryness to balance out the sweetness of the aperitivo. So it works perfectly. So yeah, exactly the same but apple cider and smashed apple aperitivo. Yeah, cool. And I guess a, f- a final question. What's um, what's really your drink of choice at the minute? It can be your own product, can be anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. So um, 
you know, when you've been tasting your own stuff all day and you get home, you don't really want to drink it. So <laughs> I drink my stuff all day, every day anyway. Um, and I do very much enjoy it. But when I get home, I just want a beer. <laughs> and yeah, it's just like something interesting, but still easy drinking. So like XPA, Sessionable Pale Ale, something like that. Just something that you can, if you want to, it's interesting enough, but it's also enough that you can just not think about it. Just enjoy it. Beautiful. Sounds Aww. good. Thank you so much, Tim. That was so interesting. Um, if anybody else wants to check it out, get down and see Damage Good Distilling. Um, your website as well. They can figure yes. out everything, where it is, uh, and go and have that tasting experience as well. Yeah, or like I said, just um, you can email me, tim at damagegoodsdistilling.com.au. Fantastic. Beautiful. All right. Thank Thanks, you. Tim. Cheers. Cheers Thank you.